You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. A couple of weeks ago, I summarized for us three main themes that we had discovered throughout the book of Esther. Let me just quickly go over those three. The first one, the first theme was sin. And we saw that that was on several levels. There is the sin of the Persian king Xerxes, a drunk, perverted, godless, consumed with himself man. There is also the sin of Haman, his second in command that he elevated to that position, who was also godless, consumed with his own glory sort of man. And that became evident when he got so angry that one man would not bow down to him. Out of the entire Persian empire, one man would not bow down to him, and that one man's name was Mordecai. And in Haman's pride, he decreed death to all the Jewish people. Then there were also the sins of Mordecai and Esther, because they kept hidden their faith. No one knew that they believed in the one true God of the Bible, not even Esther's husband, the king. The second great theme was that of suffering. As alluded to in a decree made by Haman, a death sentence was instituted over all Jews living in the Persian Empire. The date had been set. It had been announced in advance. So there will be suffering for Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews. The third major theme was that of stewardship. How would Mordecai and Esther in this great reversal that I'll, I'll point to again in a few moments... But this great reversal that happened in Esther, that they now have incredible wealth and influence and notoriety that God has providentially entrusted to them, how will they care for that? How will they use it? And we see that they use it for the well-being of the entire community. Finally, on this, our last study in the book of Esther, the overriding theme is that of salvation. Salvation came from Mordecai, who was sentenced to die. And as he experienced salvation, in addition, salvation comes to all of God's people. They were under a death sentence, but that got reversed. And their enemy, Haman, died, and they lived. And what we see today in this last sermon from the book of Esther is that salvation requires celebration. In this final reading from Esther, the first thing we're going to look at is the institution of a feast, a festival of the Jewish people called Purim that is still celebrated to this day. And if you've ever wondered, well, what is it all about? When did it begin? We have it detailed right here in our text. As God's people experience salvation, they respond with celebration. That's this great holiday, this great Jewish feast and festival known as Purim. So as we read the last 13 verses of Esther 9, you'll see both a summary statement on the entire book as well as the history of that holiday. 
The idea is this. The end of the book, a summary is given of God's salvation so that there can be celebration. So it is with you and me. We need to make note of the history of God's people. We are part uh, of that line, that family line of God's people. We are part of that family history. So their salvation is our salvation. Their celebration is our celebration. Similarly, church history is our story of God at work. And God at work to us and through us and for us and in spite of us. And this is so important to hear because today we are so incredibly individualistic. A lot of times we don't know our family origin, our, our history, our community. But in the scriptures, we see the history of God's people of which we are all a part. And we see how God brought salvation to them. And it gives us hope. That this same God who brought salvation in their day and in other days will show up and bring his salvation to us in our day. And so that our, not only for ourselves, but our kids and our grandkids, that they will experience that as well. So as we're reading this, think about the particular ways in which God has brought salvation into your life. Maybe he has saved you from some horrible, terrible fate. Maybe it was some sickness. Maybe it is sin that has plagued you. Maybe it is your past that has haunted you. And of course, for everyone who believes, he has saved us from sin, from Satan, into everlasting life. And so we capture that salvation and, and we recall it, we remember it, we share it. And that's why there are feasts and festivals and holidays to celebrate, to remember, to make note of. And it's why we do this nationally, to take these momentous occasions and remember them. Thanksgiving, Veterans Day, July 4th. We remember that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves and to celebrate any time redemption and salvation comes. We do this ultimately as a church. We're at Christmas. We celebrate the coming of Jesus. And at Easter, his resurrection. These kinds of celebrations are momentous occasions that we need to remember. They came from our past. Jesus' death 2,000 years ago. But they're just as ever important and we lean into them for our future. This is exactly what's happening in this summary of salvation and this recording of celebration in the book of Esther. And if you're new to this series, this sermon will catch you up a bit. We're going to start back at chapter 9, verse 20, where we learn that Purim is a party. Here's how it starts. Mordecai recorded these events. So this is the man who was saved. Saved spiritually by God. Saved physically from death. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually 
the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. So this is the beginning of the Feast of Purim. It is basically our month of March. They are going to celebrate this as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month when that sorrow was turned into joy. And their mourning into a day of celebration. So this is a holiday. You need to know that holidays are literally holy days. That's what they mean. And so oftentimes we celebrate apart from God. We celebrate in defiance of God. We can also celebrate with God and we can celebrate God. You know, you learn a lot about people by observing what they celebrate and by observing what they don't celebrate. A couple who uh, does a big thing for their anniversary is saying something. A a person who marks their day of baptism in a big way is saying something. Those who get more excited about their football team than hearing Jesus' resurrection proclaimed is also saying something. (laughs) What do we celebrate What do you get excited about? What do you want to tell people about? What really gets you excited to celebrate? The story continues. Mordecai wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot. That's why the holiday is called Purim. He had cast the lot for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. A great reversal. Haman was going to kill Mordecai, but Mordecai lives. And Haman hung on his own cross, as it were, in his own yard. God's people were going to be destroyed, but in a reversal, they were saved and God's enemies were destroyed. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them, so they, their descendants, all who joined them, this is about the kids and the grandkids. It's not enough that you know Jesus. Your kids need to know Jesus. Your grandkids need to know Jesus. It's not enough that you celebrate God's grace in your life. You need to tell about that grace to your children and grandchildren so that they know the God of the Bible and when he showed up and what he has done. You see, you're not just an individual. You're part of a community. You're part of a family. You're part of a history. And God's grace to you and God's grace through you and God's grace in spite of you is part of your testimony to help others know, love, appreciate, 
and trust that that same God will be there for them. And that same grace will be experienced by them. This is important. And we need to celebrate it. So this is for all the descendants and those around them that they should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and the time appointed. So this is going to be an annual festival. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province, in every city. You see, diversity for God's people means that they are all over the world. God's people are all over the world. But there is unity around celebration. That's why for thousands of years, all across every nation and culture and language and race, God's people, the Christian church, celebrate some things in common. Yes, of course, the big things, Christmas, Easter. But even more so, things like the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We may celebrate those two sacraments differently across denominations, but that celebration leads us to holy, godly traditions, doing the same thing for hundreds of years that God's people have been doing. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abiel, along with Mordecai the Jews, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom. Now remember, this is an empire that stretches 3 million square miles. It's enormous. These letters, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim and it was written down in the record. So let me explain some of this. First of all, it's called Purim. We just learned why. It started with Haman who was second in command of the entire Persian empire, a man of great affluence and influence and success and power. And he wanted to decide how to annihilate all of God's people. And the way he did this was to cast lots. It was called Pur. And the assumption was that if I roll the dice, as it were, we would get an answer from the spirit realm. And we would obey according to the decree given by the spirit realm. Now, this isn't necessarily an evil thing. You may recall in Acts chapter 1, the disciples of Jesus cast lots to determine who was going to succeed Judas. And the lot fell on Matthias. But in this particular case, the Persians cast lots to decide on which day to annihilate all of God's people. And now God's people call this a holiday, Purim, because it was a great reversal. Scripture indicates very clearly that we may roll the dice, but it's God who is going to determine the actual outcome. 
that God is sovereign over all times and people and places. So they call the holiday Purim. And like many holidays, they eat together. That was a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God where we will sit at the table with our Lord Jesus Christ. In addition, they were to give gifts to one another. We saw that. It's like what we do at the Christmas season. And they were generous toward the poor, particularly those who were believers. So those who are God's people and struggling, maybe, maybe single moms and widows and orphans, those who are affected by circumstances beyond their control, those who are unemployed or underemployed, working hard but struggling to make ends meet. I want you to see this is not politically motivated. It's required in Scripture. This is God's people loving and caring and demonstrating the love that God has for us and giving it off generously toward others. This is our angel tree at Christmas. Or as we combine with churches all over the world for the Operation Christmas Child Shoe Boxes. Or this is us in the food pantry every Monday evening. So for us, this is a sense of ritual not routine. And, and let me explain to you the difference between the two. Maybe you grew up a nominal Christian. You really didn't know Jesus. It's not the church's fault. You just weren't interested. As a kid, you can remember going to church, but it was just routine. It's not something you wanted to do. You had to do. And if you couldn't avoid it, you thought, like, okay, I'll at least try to endure it. Communion meant nothing to you. It was some bad bread and just a tiny bit of grape juice. They sang songs, old ones, it meant nothing. And then you met Jesus. And all of a sudden, routine became ritual. A repeated act that has meaning. Oh, communion, it's about Jesus. His body broken, his blood shed, that's meaningful. Oh, going to church, that's where God's people are. And it's going with God's people into the presence of God. That's meaningful. Oh, they're singing. Well, I love Jesus and I want the Holy Spirit in me who's allowing me to sing too. That's meaningful. Oh, the word of God is, is opened and now my ears are opened. This isn't just some old man droning on, boring me. <laughs> this is the truth from a man who's serving me. The difference between ritual and routine oftentimes is not what's out there, it's what's in here. Ritual is where we do things repeatedly but they have meaning all the time. Every time I hug and kiss my wife, that is not routine. That is ritual. Every time I'm with my daughters and their families, that is not routine. That is ritual. And I can promise you this. Every time I get up to teach the Bible, that is not routine. I'm glad that we can be here and do something that is great together. 
So what God is, is instituting is this ritual. And he's saying, I want you to do this. I want you to do it as a family. I want you to do it from here on. And you do it together. And what's sad is over time, the opposite happens. The ritual becomes routine. And today, Purim is still celebrated. It's an interesting, curious holiday. You can ask your Jewish friends about it. It's, it's kind of like Halloween. They get dressed up. They go to the synagogue or temple, and they read the entire book of Esther. And any time Haman's name is mentioned, they jeer and make all kinds of noise. And it's very different from how services would be normally in a Jewish synagogue. So it's kind of like Halloween or Mardi Gras. People drink too much, wear too little, and it's not awesome. <laughs> it, it looks more like the parties that King Xerxes held earlier in the book, where people are drinking too much, decisions are made that aren't good, and people are out of control. Should God's people celebrate Purim? It's certainly not a sin to. If you want to, you're welcome to, but if you do, remember. What we've discovered over these last 10 weeks together, it all needs to point to Jesus because only his kingship and his kingdom are what we all long for. And if it's not about Jesus, it becomes routine. Even Christmas and Easter. If it's not about Jesus, it's just routine. But here's the thing, if you love God and you're excited about something, you can throw a party whenever you want. I don't know if you knew that. You can throw a party whenever you want. You can cook food and, and call people to come over. You can have music. You see, what tends to happen is that we throw parties that dishonor the Lord. And so much of the story in the book of Esther is a series of banquets and feasts and parties that dishonor the Lord. Men are drunk, women are abused, things are out of control, evil decisions are made. Here's that great reversal. And it shows us how to redeem feasting and how to redeem holidays. To celebrate as an act of worship, not in defiance of God, but in the presence of God. To invite God and his people together so that we can celebrate his salvation. Well, we need to finish our reading. Then we'll come back to the celebration. We, we've, we've just talked about the, about the festival, the feast of Purim. Now we move to chapter 10. It's only three verses long. And those three verses tell us that even though things are wonderful... Things are amazing. Things have changed. This ain't heaven. Here's how chapter 10 opens. King Xerxes, okay, so he's still the king. Same bad, drunken, perverted man. They're not celebrating a new king. You know, did he get saved? Did he fall on his face? Did he cry out to the Lord? Did he repent? Nope. Still drunken, perverted King Xerxes. Imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. All of a sudden, now it's a tax revenue party. We don't tend to throw tax revenue parties. Why are these people celebrating? Because they 
actually do have another king and a better kingdom. And all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? It's as if they're saying, well, we have Mordecai, and he's now second in command in the entire Persian empire. And he loves us and he cares for us and he serves us. So it's not all bad. There's a little bit of hope in what is an otherwise hopeless situation. Final verse. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people. And spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Bad news, same king, same kingdom. (laughs) And taxes are going up. Good news, God loves us. He hasn't dealt with all of our problems, but he's dealt with the biggest one. And it shows us here. That even when there is salvation and celebration, there still isn't true peace. Political leaders aren't what they ought to be. Financial systems aren't what they ought to be. Everything is not right with the world and we remain restless and frustrated. So we become cause crusaders and we put our hope in politicians or in business leaders, or in moral leaders, and we try our hardest and do our best, and we still still struggle to find hope because peace never comes. It doesn't matter how many wars we fight, how much money we spend, peace never comes because we need the prince of peace. But in case you think God has forgotten us, or that peace will never come, let me remind you. God became a man, lived without sin, died in your place for your sin, rose as your Savior, puts the Holy Spirit in you, and gives you a new name because you are a new creation. You know what that means? It means that for believers, this is as close to hell as we will ever get. It's only going to get better. Here's what scripture attests. Jesus has gone on before you. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He loves you. He knows you. He seeks you. He pursues you. He serves you. He's preparing a place for you. He is setting a table for you and he's going to sing over you in his love. Man, that sounds like a party to me. And then what happens is we tend to focus on our sin more so than on our Savior. But sin doesn't lead to celebration. Salvation leads to celebration. So as Christians, we acknowledge our sin, but we get to our Savior And then we realize, 
Now we have something to celebrate. Jesus. So I want to invite you to celebrate your salvation. Share it, sing it, text it, post it. When God showed up and what he has done. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.